Hello, everyone, and welcome to Capital A, Unauthorized Opinions on Art and Culture. Those of you that have been following along know that this series began as a YouTube series. So these first few episodes, episodes one through four, are actually just the audio from my first few YouTube videos. And, you know, it's been a bit of a learning process. So um, I'd say the audio quality on these first few episodes isn't maybe the best. If that uh, bothers you, you can skip ahead to episode five, where I think uh, the audio quality improves. I won't be mad. But, um, you know, if that doesn't bother you so much, here for the record are episodes one through four, where I kind of get into some of the context and some of the ideas that pushed me to begin this series, starting with episode one, Art and Space. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Capital A, a series offering unauthorized opinions on art and culture. For the first episode, I wanted to share with you the series of thoughts that inspired me to create this series. And it's a series of thoughts that begins with a lecture I attended about know, a few months ago uh, with the performance artist Coco Fusco, who said something that really stuck with me. She said that... Uh, when she had been a young artist in New York back in the 90s, she would go to a lecture or a panel discussion or an art opening practically every night of the week. And that one of the things that saddened her about the art world as it has kind of come to be in the last 30 or 40 years is that those spaces that she used to go to to meet people and engage with new ideas and learn, those spaces are starting to close up. And sitting in that audience, I remember thinking two things. One, I can't imagine going out to uh, an art opening or uh, a lecture every night of the week in 2019, right? Most of us, certainly myself, come home from work rather tired. And, you know, just speaking for myself, if I can make it out to an art event of some kind once or twice a week, then that's a really good week. And uh, the second thought was that, well, you know, in a certain sense, art spaces have not decreased, but proliferated in New York over the last 30 years, right? So there's more museums, galleries, and performance spaces in New York now than there were in the 90s or indeed in any other point in history. So what is it exactly that Coco Fusco meant when she said that the spaces where, you know, she engaged with art and engaged with new ideas were starting to close up. I think to understand this and to understand the huge distance, really, that uh, the art world has come from the New York of the 90s to the New York of today, one has to make a little bit of a subtle distinction between venues on the one hand and spaces on the other. And to illustrate this distinction, I want to read to you two descriptions um, of art spaces from two different publications. The first is Claire Bishop's description of or review of The Shed from the September 2018 issue of Artform. 
And the shed is this sort of high-tech, multi-million dollar art and performance venue that has just been opened up in the Hudson Yards development of New York. It's this sort of blue-chip investment uh, opportunity. All the big names in real estate development are behind it. Uh, the architect Elizabeth Diller designed it. And the rhetoric around it is, is actually, you know, of course, not money, but utopia, right? It's supposed to be this protean structure that can change its shape to accommodate different kinds of performances or like, you know, be a huge, uh, open up to accommodate a huge crowd for a performance one minute and then like, you know, close in for a more intimate gathering the next minute. So it's supposed to be this like model of protean flexible space, um, which supposedly we all need um, in order to make art in the 2000s. So here's uh, Claire Bishop on the shed. <clears throat> the fact page on the website for Prelude to the Shed gives a taste of the social control behind it. No outside food or beverages, no chairs or blankets, no flags or signs, no pets, no selfie sticks, no umbrellas, refreshments available for purchase only with a credit card or debit card, no cash transactions. The space might ostensibly be open to all, but participation is invitation only. One can only imagine the security response if a group of street dancers descended on the Shed's plaza unannounced and a crowd of spectators grew around them. And a little bit later in the same article, she says, New York produced much of its best art when the city was a bankrupt ruin. This is not a romanticization of poverty, just an acknowledgement that radical experimentation doesn't need 17,000 square feet of high-tech retractable pavilion. The architecture of a space matters less than how it is used. This should be obvious to anyone. The shed's fine line between culture and control underscores that spaces today don't need to be curated, but occupied. Now compare that to another space, the Cabaret Voltaire. The Cabaret Voltaire was this sort of seedy nightclub in Zurich where Zurich Dada was born. And uh, this description comes to you courtesy of the artist Hugo Ball, who was one of the founders of Zurich Dada. And uh, it's, a, uh, it's an extract from his diaries in the book um, Dada Art and Anti-Art by Hans Richter, who was another participant in uh, Berlin Dada, sorry, Zurich Dada. And here we have Ball's description of the way that the Cabaret Voltaire had been founded. <clears throat> when I founded the Cabaret Voltaire, I was sure there, that there must be a few young people in Switzerland who, like me, were interested not only in enjoying their freedom, sorry, their independence, but also in giving proof of it. I went to Er Ephraim, the owner of the Mayere, and said, Er Ephraim, please let me have your room. I want to start a nightclub. Er Ephraim agreed and gave me the room. And I went to some people I knew and said, please give me a picture or a drawing or an engraving. I should like to put on an exhibition in my nightclub. I went to the friendly Zurich press and said, put in some announcements. There's going to be an international cabaret. We shall do great things. And they gave me their pictures and they put in my announcements. So on the 5th of February, we had a cabaret. And a few pages later, we have this description of the opening night, February 5th, 1916. Ball writes, The place was full to bursting. Many could not get in. About six in the evening, when we were still busy hammering and putting in futurist posters, there appeared an oriental-looking deputation of four little men with portfolios and pictures under their arms, bowing politely many times. They introduced themselves. 
Marcel Janco, the painter, Tristan Sara, Georges Janco, and a fourth, whose name I did not catch. Arp was also there, and we came to an understanding without many words. Soon Janco's opulent archangels hung alongside the other objects of beauty, and that same evening Sara gave a reading of poems, conservative in style, which he rather endearingly fished out of the various pockets of his coat. And finally, here's an excerpt by Hans Richter himself that gives an idea of the kind of uh, performances that were being put on at the Cabaret Voltaire and the kind of atmosphere of the place. He says, Bells, drums, cowbells, blows on the table or in empty boxes all enlivened the already wild accents of the new poetic language and excited by purely physical means an audience which had begun by sitting impassively behind its beer mugs. From this state of immobility it was roused into frenzied involvement with what was going on. This was art. This was life. And this was what they wanted. So think about that for a moment. Hugo Ball decides to put on a cabaret. He goes to some venue and says, please give me a room. They say, no problem. He goes to the friendly Zurich Press and says, please put in my announcements. They say, no problem. On opening night, the place is packed. There's people he's never heard of that just show up and want to work with him. There's poets giving recitals and, uh, you know, posters and things. It just all of this kind of magically happens. Nowadays, in 2019, I can kind of imagine this happening in a place like Duluth, Minnesota, or Sheffield, England. But, you know, and I mean no disrespect to these places. I grew up in the Rust Belt of upstate New York. But that's as, I think that's how far you'd have to go out from the centers of the art world to find that kind of unstructured freedom that the Cabaret Voltaire just produced. And here is where I think we see the crucial distinction. The Shed is a venue. The Cabaret Voltaire is a space. What's the difference? Well, what they have in common is obviously their physical characteristics. Both of them have four walls and a ceiling, raw square footage. But a true space has certain dimensions that a venue simply lacks, among which is perhaps a financial dimension. A space really isn't a space, I think, if it's not affordable, right? It doesn't matter how many square feet it has if you can't pay for it. And this financial dimension that makes a space truly a space as opposed to a venue is intimately tied with a third dimension, which is a temporal dimension of space. I think one of the most crucial resources that an artist needs to produce work is time. And a space is a place where you have time, unstructured time, right? Coco Fusco said that she was able to engage with all of these ideas because she went out every night of the week to a vet, whatever it was, a lecture, a panel discussion, etc. Which means that there was a certain amount of freedom from financial obligation to allow her to spend her time that way. If you're working 10, 11, 12 hours a day, 5, 6, 7 days a week, and you have an hour-long subway ride to look forward to at the end of that because you can't afford to live anywhere near the city center, obviously you just don't have the mental or physical resources to make work, right? And those of us that do have, I think, the financial good fortune to, uh, you know, own our own apartment or, um, you know, just the, the physical fortitude or stamina necessary to, you know, come home from a night of the at the office and make our work despite the fact that we're exhausted, even those fortunate souls probably don't have the energy left over at the end of that to then go out and meet new people and exchange ideas, right? So there's a crucial temporal dimension to space which is linked to financial freedom that many working artists in the large urban centers simply do not have.
Artists need space, physical, financial, and temporal space to make their work because art, it doesn't really thrive in our institutions. It tends to thrive between the institutions and that's where space exists. So what happens in a city like Los Angeles or New York where the spaces are disappearing? Does all of that creative energy just dissipate? Well, I think not. And in a sense, something even worse happens, which is professionalization. Professionalization is what happens when art goes from the margins between the institutions into the centers of the institutions themselves. And one of the ways that you can track this is by a certain proliferation that has happened over the last 30 or 40 years of the kind of standards and methods of business within the art community itself. So, for example, nowadays you need, in order to be taken seriously as an artist, you probably need an MFA, you need a resume, certainly, you need an artist statement, a website, uh, you need to spend hours and hours and hours applying to residencies and art fairs and whatever it is just to just to show, right? And this is a marked difference from the world of 40 or 50 years ago. I can't imagine asking Robert Rauschenberg or Agnes Martin for an artist statement, right? That's That would be ridiculous. There's this old joke that when bankers get together, they talk about art. And when artists get together, they talk about money. Now, I'm sure in one form or another, this was true in Picasso's day also, right? Artists have been poor for a very long time, but you know, nowadays, at least among my peer group, oftentimes what happens when artists get together is they talk about, you know, not the art, not even the money, you know, forget the money. We're, we're used to not getting paid for our work. What they talk about frequently is the sort of careerist stuff. Who has a contact at what gallery? Who got into what residency? It's that sort of like networky career bullshit that we learned from the MBA programs, the Masters in Business Administration programs, right? It's this sort of banal, step-by-step -step careerist stuff that we feel that we need and that we, most cases, really do need just to be, you know, taken seriously and to have our work be shown and seen and talked about. One friend of mine even says that he doesn't want to talk about art at all. He only wants to talk about money because he's a professional and professionals get paid for their time, right? Asking him to talk about art is asking him to engage in his professional activity and his time isn't free. Now, you know, this is not my perspective on it, but I totally hear where he's coming from, right? Because there is a systematic undervaluation of creative labor in this economy. And many artists feel, probably correctly, that in order to counterbalance that, you have to sort of adopt a perspective that is in sympathy with the structures of the MBA and the finance world and the business world, which is engaging in that undervaluation of the time of the artist. But I think the really interesting thing here is that it isn't the case that there is no, that there is no conversation around the sort of aesthetic and theoretical aspects about art. There are people that really are engaging in those sort of abstract aesthetic discussions, but they aren't the artists most of the time. In her book, Seven Days in the Art World, 
the art writer Sarah Thornton makes the interesting observation that, ironically, it's the auctioneers at Sotheby's and Christie's that engage in the sappiest art-for-art's sake aesthetic language. You know, talking about the color and the inspiration and the genius, all of those things that most artists today would be embarrassed to talk about and probably wouldn't have time because they're busy talking about who got into what residency or whatever. So purified aesthetic discourse is still alive, but it isn't usually being had by the working artists on the margins of the art world. Usually it's being had by those curators and gallerists and auctioneers that are already at the center and have a certain distance from financial necessity to begin with. And this phenomenon that in the art world it's the most well-to-do that uh, you know engage in the sappiest, most aesthetic discourse um, lines up in an interesting way with an observation made by Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist, in his book Distinction. And in Distinction, Pierre Bourdieu talks about the way that casualness with regard to material necessity is one of the ways that the rich and powerful affirm and reaffirm not only their own power, but the class structure in general. So this is from Distinction. He says, the value placed on casualness and on all forms of distance from self stems from the fact that in opposition to the anxious tension of the challengers, by which he means the people who want to climb the class structure, they, that's the possessors of social capital and financial capital, they manifest both the possession of a large capital and a freedom with respect to that capital, which is a second-order affirmation of power over necessity. And a little later he says, In so doing, they distance themselves still further from the dispossessed, who, not content with being slaves to necessity in all its forms, are suspected of being possessed by the desire for possession, and so potentially possessed by the possessions they do not or do not yet possess. So... The real fine grain of the point that Bourdieu is making here isn't just that uh, the rich hold against the poor the possessions that they don't have. It's also that the rich hold against the poor the very desire for the possessions that they don't have, a desire that the rich have no reason to evince because they have those possessions. In essence, it's a strange kind of bizarro world where the rich are calling the poor materialist. You know that saying where you always want what you can't have? Well, this is kind of the twisted obverse of that saying, where you can afford to be wise and above it all with regard to the things that you do have. And I think the real insidious point here is that this pseudo-Zen-like wisdom, this detachment from capital evinced by the possessors of capital, isn't just a lifestyle. It isn't just like a character flaw, it's actually a mechanism that um, perpetuates the unjust power differentials that make it possible. And it doesn't have to be about material possessions. It can be about, uh, you know, differentials of power of any kind. For example, I think this is a mechanism that you can feel. If you've ever been in a position where you're trying to reach out to a gallerist or a curator or someone on the inside of the art world who's in any kind of position to help you with your career, oftentimes what happens is these, these people that can actually help you, um, at least in my experience, they kind of smell the desperation on you and they recoil in horror. Even if 
they're well-intentioned. And, uh, you know, it has to be said that uh, there are a lot of people at the center of the art world that are well-intentioned. This sort of rarefied, you know, kumbaya, art for art's sake language isn't the only kind of discourse that's happening at the institutional centers of the art world. There's also, you know, many places within the very centers of the art world where the opposite is the case, where it's actually a badge of honor to, you know, challenge the assumptions of the system and to dissect the machinations of capital. And the real sad thing is this mechanism of recoil by which the insiders and the outsiders are distinguished, um, this mechanism of recoil happens in those places too. Take, for example, I don't know, a conversation between a curator and a famous artist happening in some blue chip gallery where, you know, both participants are good actors, essentially, and they're really kind of, you know, concerned about unjust social systems and how capital represents itself even in critical spaces and, you know, really get into the nitty-gritty of it um, with the best of intentions. When suddenly, from the back of the room, someone raises their hand and says, excuse me, hi, I'm an artist, no one knows who I am, maybe come look at my work or hear what I have to say, and that's the point where, you know, the conversation kind of hits its limit. So to wrap up this first episode, I want to get back to where we started with the discussion of space. And I want to point to what I think is a very interesting argument made by the curator Nato Thompson, who works for Creative Time. And in his book, Seeing Power, he makes this very interesting point that discourses are not as ephemeral and not as incorporeal as we think they are. You know, after the 70s, after semiotics and uh, discourse analysis became kind of all the rage for a while, we started to think of discourse as this hegemonic thing that just kind of like a bacteria, it like exists by its own logic and it just like proliferates magically in a space invisibly. And, you know, after a while, maybe another bacteria will come in and uh, take over the ecosystem. But all of this happens by its own kind of logic and you know, beneath in many ways the level at which we would notice it operating. But this, says Nato Thompson, is not in fact the case. The point that he makes is that discourses are created in physical spaces, institutions, right? His examples are, for example, the New York Times, or, you know, on the more or less progressive side of the spectrum, or the, uh, the Cato Institute, which is, you know, clearly on the uh, um, regressive side of the spectrum. And his point is that these spaces are the physical embodiments of discourses. They're the factories that produce the discourses that change so much of the world to fit their image. So here's a quote. <clears throat> Let's think again about the Times and the Cato Institute. These two institutions seem like they should have nothing in common with each other, but they do. Both have walls and computers and employees and electric bills and water systems. There is nothing theoretical about Cato or the Times. The producers of the real exist in the world, and they have economies that support them. All of this should provide a kind of comfort. It means that the production of meaning need not be something that is merely debated. It is something that can be visited. In other words, infrastructures exist in space, not in the abstract, but in bodies and buildings. And if they have walls, those walls can be climbed, torn down, bashed through. 
They can also, and here I think is the most crucial thing, be built from the ground up. So, <clears throat> I think that's a very interesting point, which is that in order to think strategically about how to change the world, how to change the real, as Nato Thompson put it, you need to think about space. And this, in many ways, is my motivation for starting this video series. I don't have much physical space, but the internet is still a space in some of the most important senses. It's a space that is largely free, financially, and it's a space where people spend a lot of time in an unstructured way, temporally. <clears throat> so, and you know, I think my kind of paranoid fear is that that might not last forever. You know, and sometimes in my more paranoid moments, I think that, uh, I think, I imagine the world as it could be like 50 or 100 years from now, when people in this like, imaginary dystopia that exists in my mind, look back on the world of 2019 and think to themselves, wow, those people have no idea how good they had it. Like anyone could just upload anything to YouTube at any time and it was free. You didn't have to have a voucher, you didn't have to have a, a permit or a license or whatever it is. You know, the internet was really a space back then. And in kind of anticipation of this dystopia in my mind, what I want to do with this video series is to treat the internet as the kind of space that at least I need in my practice and in my thinking to develop further as an artist and as a thinker. So I don't know where it's going. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm going to see where it goes. Please write if uh, you have any reactions to anything that I said, um, you know, part of a space is that it's open to not just the people that are speaking, but to the people that are speaking back. So I'm really curious to hear any reactions that you might have had. And thank you for joining me. I hope that I'll see you next time.